This is the Yahoo Finance Podcast. The following is from our All Market Summit held here in New York City right in Times Square on October 25th, 2017. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined by uh, Rick Reeder, who is the uh, head of global fixed income at BlackRock, which, as you just heard, is the biggest uh, asset manager on the planet with, I, I think, about $6 trillion. Yeah. Yeah. And your purview is $1.7 trillion? It is. It's just it is. a staggering amount of money, Rick. I don't know where you put it all. No, I don't know. I know sleeping doesn't happen very often, but, uh, right. but it keeps us busy, for sure. I mean, that is your job, in a sense, is allocating um, you know, where money goes. And, and, 100%. Right? Yeah, 100%. We're, uh, <clears throat> you know, particularly in these markets where fixed income is not generating significantly positive returns like the equity market, the determination of where you go to try and generate return, positive return, is becoming more and more of a uh, of an interesting art to try and uh, try and figure which way we can talk about. Right, and then balancing the risk and return and 100%. chasing yield. 100%. So you are a fixed income guy, a bond guy, but you're also very much interested in equities, and and you've said that equities are actually kind of appealing now. Obviously, your research informs you about both yep. um, types of investments. Um, what are what's driving your thinking right now, and how does technology play into that? So I'd say with regard to equities or, or generally you're well, saying? Well, let's talk equities first and then generally sure. about technology. So I would say one thing, first stop about, uh, you know, being on the fixed income side gives you a pretty good lens into the equity market in a couple of forms today. And when I think people, you hear this constant discussion about PE ratio, are we stretched and where are valuations? The thing that's happening in fixed income, and we can talk about this, there's not enough assets in the world, there's not enough income in the world given the demographic, which we'll talk about. So what's happening is when you keep the discount rate low, which the central banks are doing, all the cash flow gets to the equity in two forms. What you do is you take the multiple on equities because it's just a straight how you value the cash flows when you drop your discount rate, you keep it low. You can run a higher equity multiple for a long time. So when people say the multiple is here and it's high, actually if you keep the discount rate down, you can run high for a long time. Second point that I would make is what we see in fixed income. When you can finance companies at extraordinarily cheap levels on the debt side, you functionally get all the cash flow down the equity. And by the way, you can borrow to buy back your stock to make it, to even accelerate that program. So the reason why I've been so bullish on equities <clears throat> is I think that you don't get enough analysis on the balance sheet, on funding, and what that discount rate does, what the central banks do, because it gets right to the equity. Anyway, really powerful stuff that I think people look at equities wrong <clears throat> today in terms of, because they're not factoring in the other, the other dynamics around it. It's interesting. It sort of reflects, I think, a little bit of what Warren Buffett's saying. You know, when they ask him if stock prices are overvalued, he says, well, look at the discount rate. And that yeah. should inform your thinking. <clears throat> you know, I think, say, I think people analyze it and say, okay, that, you know, they use these models that say the 10-year interest rate relative to equities. And it's somewhat reasonable. But the model that we use, if you, like, take free cash flow that companies that throw off and take what their financing rate is, where they're directly borrowing, it's just like a dividend discount model. It means your cash flows are discounted by a very low discounting rate, and it just means your, your valuation can be high. And, and, right. and free cash flow multiples and equities are not high today. So equity prices don't scare you right now, not particularly? At <clears throat> not at all, particularly given the dynamic that uh, there's not enough, we talk about there's not enough income in the world, there's not enough cash flow in the world today. And if you take, there's some great stats, if you take all of the coupon flow off of treasuries, German bonds, Japanese JGBs, coupon flow, not even where rates are, what the coupon is in the portfolio, it doesn't equate to the top five companies in the S&P 500, meaning the cash flow sits in the equity market today. And when you depress rates for so long, 
that's where the availability, that's why, and quite frankly, you're not seeing as much as I would have anticipated in the US of people rotating into the equity market. I feel like people have been fighting it for a long time. Anyway, I do think that that's durable, particularly if growth is solid, which we think it will be. That's, that's really interesting. But do the equity guys get mad at you and saying, hey, you stay over to Always. fixed income? They do? <laughs> like you're weighing, in, you're weighing in on their turf, they, they, don't, they, get, they get mad at that? No, so I would say, uh, you know, we talk about it a lot, but uh, you know, it's an interesting thing where, where the people talk about the debt markets and the equity markets like, like they work in different buildings. Right. When you actually look at valuing a real estate transaction, a, a structured product, it's all about cash flow and how you finance a cash flow. That's it, no matter what the asset is. And that's why I think in the equity market, it's just, it's just a straight, uh, it's literally just what is my cash flow? What's my discount in that cash flow? As long as you believe that cash flow is durable, which we think it is. And uh, anyway, it's part of why I think people who tend to be, you know, who tend to focus just on equities, there's a broader dynamic at play that I think is, uh, is much more extensive. That's interesting. Um, let's, you mentioned demographics, mm -hmm. and you were kind enough to bring over uh, a few uh, graphical ideas that sort of highlighted your thinking when it comes to demographics. And you talked about people really needing to focus, you know, not just on the daily ticks and talks of monetary mm -hmm. policy, but to really sort of look big picture. So maybe we could put up some of your thoughts and we, could, we can talk about sure. your, your ideas here a little bit. <clears throat> so I'd say a couple of things. I mean, we live in an era where everybody's focused on the top line, what is the news of the day? And you know, certainly who the Fed chair is is significant. Certainly whether Draghi, you know, the discussion about is he gonna do 20 to taper to 20 billion a month or 30 billion a month, meaningful, certainly meaningful in terms of the day's price action. But I would argue there's two things that matter from a secular point of view in terms of investment. So when we finish 2018 or we finish this year or last year, there are two things that are driving investments by far more than anything else the demographic condition in the world, and technology's evolution of commerce. Those two, and I'll talk, and we'll talk about in different forms. Let me spend a minute on the, on the, on the demographics. So this chart here uh, shows you a couple of things. First of all, you know, why is the demographic so important? First of all, the aging of the population in the world is extraordinary, it's historic, and it's gonna happen for the next 10 years. It's not like it's gonna happen this month. For the next 10 years, population ages. There are two uh, significant points around that, one, when the population ages, potential growth in the world has to be slower. GDP follows the demographic curve incredibly closely. And in some places where the demographic is the most pernicious, such as Japan and Europe, rates stay down for a longer period of time, full stop. The other demographic that is so hugely important is the demand for income. The derivative of the demographic is pensions and insurance companies have unlimited amounts of money to go in the system. So this demand for income, this demand for cash flow is a direct result, we'll talk about technology in a second, of, of the aging population. The chart, because I talked too long, so the chart that, uh, that went by before was a dynamic of not only is the demographic, are we in an aging environment, but the shift of the demographic is so profound, meaning places like India, China for sure, where the demographic and the sheer size of the population over the last few years, you've created the growth in the world is changing so darn quickly. This chart shows it. So China today is 42% of growth in the world, which is an extraordinary number. They're growing faster. And, uh, and if you take the trajectory of what we're gonna look like over the next few years, you look at places like Germany, you look at places like Japan, that demographic is incredibly different than places like India. Part of the reason we like emerging markets a lot is the demographic in EM is actually pretty good and will keep growth durably strong, we think, for a period of time. So this demographic, A, you have an aging population, potential growth is lower, 
real growth is actually higher than on that demographic curve today, which we talk about. The cyclical is actually really good, which we could talk about. But anyway, that demographic, there's one last point on demographics that I, uh, that I want to show on one last chart, and I'm done with my, uh, all the oh, charts I brought. Anyway, is this, is this one that I think people underestimate. So people said, you know, you hear a lot of discussion about the 10-year treasury should be at nominal GDP. Historically, 10-year treasuries have been in and around nominal GDP. I think you're going to run nominal GDP over the next uh, couple of years. It could be literally four and a half, maybe five in this country. However, when you look at, because of the demographic, the demand for income relative to the supply that's coming, you realize there's not enough bonds in the world. Part of why equities have to go up. There's not enough bonds in the world. Huh. By the way, when the central banks take, take all of them out, um, you create a dynamic where there's not enough supply relative to the, to the demand. There's one thing I'll say before we move on to talk about different things. That supply-demand is actually getting a bit more in balance because now the central banks can pull back. This is something really powerful. We, you know, we, we have a view that rates are going to move moderately higher from here. And we've been on, uh, on, uh, on, uh, with, with you all many times about we think the 10-year is going to 250, 275 this year, which didn't feel so good when we were at 2% or 203, I think we got to. Um, you know, you know we, we make it 250 today. We, are, we do think rates can move a bit higher, but the liquidity, what the central banks were providing liquidity-wise, they can now pull back on. It's a really big deal for 2018, is the central banks last year had to plug a liquidity gap in the world, because largely because of China, and outflows out of China. We think it's actually changing now. So part of why we think rates can move moderately higher, we're gonna learn tomorrow the ECB tapering down their program. That incredible lack of bonds gets a bit better next year, it gets a bit better now. That's why the 10-year can move closer to 250, 275, maybe low threes next year. But that's a little counter to the bigger trend, which totally. is, you know, it's all, it sounds like you have a very deflationary sort of outlook or low inflation outlook between technology and demographics. You just don't see an interest rate spike in, you know, the near or midterm horizon. I mean, nothing would indicate to you that we have any sort of spike like that coming. No way. So. You know, it's all about, it's all around the margin. So we are, I mean, think about when, when the, it was determined that a 2% inflation target was the right target. Keep in mind, this is back when inflation was 6 to 14% in the 80s and 90s. We're talking about now, we think inflation is, is going to accelerate a bit here, but we're talking about can we get core inflation to two and a quarter? That's pretty epic relative to where we've been. The technology influences are extraordinary. I mean, look at the last CPI report, the same dynamic, core goods, three-month average inflation, sorry, deflation of 1.8%, negative 1.8%, core services inflating at 3%, where technology's not pressing down on it. So point being, we're gonna be in a low-rate environment for a long time, but at the margin, we think we can move a bit higher. Again, 10-year not going to nominal GDP, but can the 10-year go to three and a quarter next year? For sure. But doesn't that mean then that you're thinking that maybe the Fed and other public figures have got it all wrong? I mean, the Fed has this 2% target. Um, person in the White House has a 4% mm -hmm. GDP target. Are those really unattainable in this environment? <clears throat> so I think the Fed's doing exactly the right. I, you know, we, I think they could have moved a lot sooner than they did. But I think the Fed now is doing exactly the right thing. They're trying to tighten financial conditions a bit. And, and by the way, if you get fiscal stimulus and you get nominal GDP that can get a, you can get a 5% nominal GDP, then maybe you pull, then maybe you start to pull a stimulate the monetary accommodation back a bit more. But I think that's the Fed now. They've told us we're going to move in December. We're going to move three times next year. And uh, Chair Yellen, even after the soft inflation report, 
was pretty committed to this is what we're doing. You've heard, um, uh, you've heard uh, Dudley talk about that quite a bit. Financial conditions have taken over now in terms of does inflation have to hit two? As long as we're moving there over the medium term, financial conditions have become a big deal. The liquidity in the system today around the world is actually too high. Financial conditions are too easy. Central banks are pulling back. They don't need to speed up the pace. You know, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what Draghi says tomorrow. I think he's going to articulate keeping rates low for a long time, but you can pull the liquidity back. The liquidity, the difference between today and a couple of years ago, a year ago, in liquidity in the world, because now the economies are growing, reserves are building in the world, liquidity in the world is tremendous. Central banks don't need to keep it up there. So they can pull back while the, while the, while the economy, which is the natural trade-off. So I don't think they're necessarily at odds. I do think the economy can grow faster and the central bank, like they're doing, can start pulling back the accommodation. How necessary is tax reform in terms of stimulating the economy, Rick? So, you know, if, you know the normal way that, uh, that the system works is monetary and fiscal policy work hand in glove with one another. And when you get fiscal, you get less monetary. That hasn't been exactly the way it's worked for, uh, for the last uh, number of years. So monetary policy, it's all been on the back of monetary policy. You know, we're at a time today where the economy is actually growing and, you know, we think it's durable. And the reason why we're convinced it's durable growth, U.S. and globally, is we track, by the way, we saw it in durable goods today, we track CapEx numbers. <clears throat> if you go for the last few years, companies were an incentive to do capital expenditure because what you're incented to do, just buy back your stock. You had, you had very little debt. You had a lot of cash sitting on the balance sheet. You're going to create the same IRR, same ROE benefit, same benefit to your stock. Just borrow, buy back your stock. Think about what's happened. The valuations of your equity is now higher. The cost of your financing is going marginally higher because rates are moving up. And the visibility around growth, so if you get some fiscal, China continues to grow, which it is, all of a sudden CapEx starts to accelerate and the economy grows. So if you were to say today, is today the perfect time to initiate fiscal stimulus? Uh, no, today is not the perfect time. That being said, there's a number of things that need to be done, whether it's this year or five years from now or five years ago, around things like infrastructure, simplifying the tax code, uh, to truly incent um, you know, repatriation, um, that, that is to bring some cash back. There's some things that are clearly effective today and should be implemented today. Um, but do, does the economy need a jolt right now? Dubious, particularly with unemployment running at you know, low fours on its way to high threes. Interesting, and it's not clear to me how you know, tax reform has been articulated or framed. Clearly, I think everyone agrees that simplification, streamlining, making it um, commensurate to other countries, all that is good. But to your point, I mean, do we need this boost right now? Yeah, no, I, I say now's not the perfect time that you would say, let's introduce it. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, part of why I'm so convinced growth is going to be durably strong, A, I think organically because of CapEx spend, et cetera, consumption, um, net, cons net consumption can continue to be strong given where unemployment is, given where the housing market is, et cetera. Um, so, no, I don't think today is the day we necessarily need it. But I do think there's some implementations that uh, whenever, they're, whenever they're done um, to, to make more efficient, you know, dealing with how does corporate interest work, um, et cetera. How do you get more efficient, uh, a more efficient tax code? How do you get more efficient, um, you know, spending from companies uh, to make the recovery more durable longer term? I think it makes sense. But are you going to borrow from growth in 2019? For sure. If you said to me, are we going to be in a recession in 2018? I'd say the odds are almost zero. If you said to me, are you going to be in a recession in 2019? I wouldn't debate it. 
because if you got the stimulus, there's no doubt, you know, particularly direct expensing, which is taking accelerated depreciation to the next level. If you got direct expensing and you could deduct the interest of your company today, that is a powerful cocktail of I'm going to make an expenditure today, maybe one that I wouldn't have made two years hence. So I do think you'll pull forward growth um, today, and then, like I say, 2019, 2020 becomes a bit more of a question. So it sounds like you wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of blow-off in 2018. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I'm inferring that. Yeah, and I, listen, I, you know, depending on when. I mean, do I think you're going to go into 2018 with a uh, stimulus or no stimulus, with a tailwind of, uh, of global growth that's solid? I mean, look at the data in Germany today. Look at the data coming out of uh, export flow around the world. Um, by the way, can I say one thing to get into this technology dynamic, yeah. which I don't think people talk about enough. When you bring down the cost so aggressively, and you bring down the cost, whether it's apparel, food, energy, what ends up happening is the quantity of goods accelerates. And, and I, people don't focus, and we've shown this on a number of charts, I couldn't bring any more today, I, I, I think it bore people, but when you actually look at quantity of goods in the world, why are export numbers power, strong? The quantity of goods moves up when you bring the cost base down so significantly. So it's a positive derivative of the fact that technology is creating more efficiencies in the system, leads to higher quantities. So you know the tailwind of growth, you know, the, certainly in you know, the first half of next year, is solid with or without any additional kicker or stimulus. I couldn't agree with you more that technology is deflationary. And sometimes you know, talking to people in Washington, I think that's lost on them, mm -hmm. people in the Fed. But you have said that you think the Fed's done a great job, which sort of brings the question of the next Fed chair or maybe the continuation of the current Fed chair's tenure. What's your take? Do you want Janet Yellen to stay there? Or, so who do you want and what do you think is going to happen? Those are the two questions. Those are two hard questions. So, <clears throat> so can I say, can I say one? Because I want to caveat one thing. Uh -huh. okay. So I think the Fed has done this year a phenomenally good job. I do think the central bank could have started to pull back on the accommodation earlier. In fact, I think they could have started two years earlier. And today, where financial conditions are, quite frankly, are too easy. Where valuations in some of the markets, not in the equity market, but in some of the financing markets, I would argue it's too easy today. Financial conditions are too easy, valuations are too easy. So anyway, I think the Fed's done a phenomenal job this year. I think they could have been earlier on the process. And I think the economy would be in the exact same place today. In fact, I think the delta, when you move interest rates from zero to two, has no negative impact on the economy. In fact, I could show a bunch of different ways where actually I think it helps the economy. Because we're in a saving economy, it helps pensions, it helps uh, people who are sitting in cash, et cetera, it helps the velocity of employment. Anyway, long-winded way of saying, okay, so who's the next, who is in, you know, who do I want as the next Fed chair? I think it's a, uh, it's a tough question. Listen, I think, I think that the, the markets, the dispersion of, uh, between the next Fed chair is not as high as people think, i.e., people have painted uh, Kevin Warsh as a hawk and Jay Powell on the other side is a dove, and I actually think the range of outcome is much tighter than that. Kevin Warsh, similar to how I described it, I think was very, very clear two years ago they should start moving. Fed's right. doing exactly what he, said, what he suggested. Right. So, and, and I think there's something really important about the Fed. It's different than when you're elected president or you're elected into a, an elected office where you come in and say the prior administration didn't do a good job. The Fed generally carries out the mission. The staff has a big influence. So I don't think the dispersion is that wide. John Taylor one is interesting because if you, if, you, if you look at the model and you look at his analysis, it would suggest a hawkish, a much more significantly hawkish posture today than where we are. Do I think he changes it day one? No. But that one I think is the one that gives the market a bit of pause. Mm. And that's the one that I think is trickier 
for ourselves, for others to figure out, because if he's sincere, which he obviously would be, if he's sincere to his models and his orientation, that's a bit more aggressive than the others would be. I think the others will carry out, move in December, no matter what, uh, well, the Fed chair won't, the new Fed chair won't have an influence on that, but move in December, move two to three times next year, I think the dispersion, the John Taylor one that was interesting, and the shape of the curve, and how people think about John Taylor, I think will be, uh, will be interesting. There'll also be an interesting construct if he was vice chair with the Jay Powell chair, um, which I would argue would continue to be about where we've been in terms of policy. Quick last question, best yes, place to make money in the markets today, fixed income and equities? And equities? Yeah, just what, what would be a good bet for you? Uh, so, listen, I think equities have, to normalize this equilibrium, the debt equity arbitrage, which has been the greatest arbitrage in history, debt versus equity, we need equities to go up, to create equilibrium, rates go up 50 to 75 basis points, or stocks go up 20, I think you'll get somewhere in between. I think stocks will go up another 10, 10 to 15, and I think, I think rates are gonna back up another 50 to 75, and that'll create equilibrium. If you said to me in fixed income, listen, the emerging markets, per, the, per the, the dynamic we talked about earlier, there's going to be an emerging market to developed market rate convergence. Emerging markets are actually seeing inflation come down, are growing durably. Their central banks can cut rates, like Brazil is doing, like Indonesia is doing, whereas the developed market central banks are raising rates. You're getting paid for owning EM. So if you said to me, stick to your, uh, stick to your knitting in terms of fixed income, I like EM, DM, great convergence. If you give me a bit more down the capital structure into equity, I certainly think equities have a bit more to run. I'd not say you can't trade off a couple of percent before. All right, you heard it here. Rick Reeder from BlackRock, thank you so much for yeah, your time. Thank really you. appreciate thank you. it. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.